Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 82 of the Petronauts podcast, and this is part two with Daniel Seaver, the VP of Midstream and Marketing for Fundair Resources um, here in Denver, Colorado. Um, they also have, they have assets in Wyoming. They have assets in the DJ Basin. They're actively drilling in the DJ. Um, Daniel and I started talking and had to break this up into two podcasts because the conversation went on for almost two hours. So we cover a wide range of topics from the last podcast episode. We talk about the oil market. We talk about the legislation going on in Colorado. And in this podcast, we cover valuations of assets, what's happening in the DJ, um, education in the space, um, sort of not the labor issues within Colorado. You name it, we get into it. We cover a wide range of topics. So um, without further ado, we'll jump right back into this conversation. Again, this is part two with Daniel Seaver uh, with Fundair Resources in Denver, Colorado. And uh, this is, uh, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, episode 81, please do. It is a really, really great start. And this conversation will make a lot more sense. So thank you so much, guys. Hope you enjoy it. Bye. Well, so it's it's interesting because when I speak with privates, it's funny because I it really does support my um, my view of the market in, into the privates that really find unique ways and are typically wanting to continue to um, to do deals when the market's crap and want to continue to do deals when the market's great and see long-term value. And so it's that it's that that vision um, that I think is very positive, but it bodes well. It's positive for the industry. It's not quite as positive for oil prices, I think people realize, because I think this industry, particularly in the U.S., is so nimble and flexible. And, and you know, despite all the massive, the, the serious regulatory headwinds, as long as you can do business, you know, it, it's sort of working. Um, but I think it's, 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 there's a lot of opportunity um, and it's hard. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many people and, you know, um, how many deals people look at and it doesn't get done and how many, you know, years people work years and years and years before they actually get an asset. But then it sort of happens. And, um, you know, now that, you know, obviously the inventive move and then, um, you know, the talk of Exxon and Pioneer, uh, everybody's talking about this, this wave, are we going to have a wave of ac- acquisitions? And uh, it's interesting to me because I think we, you, you may, if, 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 the, if the publics really think we're in a true bull story for oil, which, uh, you know, we're not in a bull story for oil from demand. We're not in a bull story for, for the health of the macro economy. We may be in a uh, bullish narrative because of the geopolitical backdrop and such the tensions and basically a floor sort of underwriting on oil prices. Um, but I that wave, if we could have an acquisition environment going into a recession, which is which is really unique. Um, so it, it, you know, I'm, I mean, there may be, I'm curious if you think there'll be maybe more opportunities as, uh, as we move into, I mean, obviously lower oil prices and people losing their minds a little bit and lower gas prices could, could be an opportunity for more acquisitions when folks just say, Hey, I need to get out. I want to wash my hands, especially of gas. And I could see folks, you know, wanting to, to come into that a little bit. And I think any kind of softness there is also seems to be positive on the inflationary side because you, you did mention that as well is that, you know, the inflationary side is what's driving up. We're just going to need higher oil prices. And, um, you know, typically in oil and gas, that doesn't stay forever. And I know for, for lots of businesses, but if we start losing employment more broadly in the U.S., we will definitely see some benefit in, this, in the oil and gas sector of having just more people that are looking for work and looking for good paying work. Yeah, that's right. No doubt on that. With yeah, the labor as a whole, 
we've our AFEs in the DJ. I mean, there used to be four and a half, five. I think we're up to six ish now for oh wow BPCAFE. So yeah, it definitely definitely jumped up and go grab our VP of operations. He'll tell you even more about kind of how that landscape works. It's just it's wild and yeah, I think there's some positives to it because I think there needs to be some humbling. Probably isn't the right word, but that hey, this is oil and gas is a need to every citizen in this country and. It's going to be here, kind of whether we like it or not. Now, to what extent? Obviously, I think that's to be debated. Um, I'm, I'm longer term, kind of think oil and gas is going to stay for the future, especially when you think about. I mean, in January, California gas prices got up to fifty dollars an MMBTU. Yeah. That, that's lower forty-eight prices. That's that's not getting on a ship and going overseas. So, um, it's just it's wild to me, and there needs to be some kind of. Um, Chris Wright puts it well, and I can't remember the word, but definitely like humbling of the American consumer just to. And understand life's been good because of the shale boom and it's right. been a lot of capital and i think the capital is coming more from families and you said it earlier privates of privates um, where people are looking for returns they're trying to maybe fight inflation and um yeah our, our investor world war diversified capital has done a great job uh telling that story and um painting that picture for folks that are in california right they see the constant gavin newsom gavels to the industry and we were successful. You just got to work harder for that. But I think there's more reward now because obviously there's less capital. So the opportunities are going to remain. I think it's going to keep asset valuations depressed. I'd love to hear your thoughts. When you think actually there's going to be a pretty healthy M&A market back in the oil and gas sector. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I get asked, I get asked a lot of it uh, sort of offline and, and, and by clients and stuff. And I think that um, I, I'm, haven't got a complete consensus on people agreeing with me on this, but uh, it, it, most people don't agree with my outlook on oil prices, and that tends to be right as well. Um, so, you know, I think that on the M&A side, um, so I one, I do think that we're going into recession, or if not in recession. Unemployment lags. It lags usually by two years. We're going to have higher unemployment, period. So the oil and gas industry is going to be able to hire. Inflation will come down a little bit. This sort of the, the pent up everything, the craziness. We're already starting to see that, I think, on the rig side a little bit. Maybe not so much on the frack side. Um, but uh, And that's because we have high, high oil prices. And, and just like people not letting go at the restaurants because they're worried about not they also have employee retention tax credits, but they're worried about not being able to hire them. The same thing is people can't, you know, just they're not going to nobody's dropping off, you know, frack plates and stuff. I believe these calendars are booked, right, because people are drilling and completing wells. Um, so we still have that there, but it's, it's you know, people, access to people, uh, readily available people, and I, I don't know exactly where on your AFEs how much that went up, but, and access to equipment, um, and, and, you know, all the stuff that it, it goes into your, your cost, your well, into your AFE, all that really matters, but when, when, when you start getting a little bit of loosening in that, that's beneficial. Um, and then the question is, is who is intelligent enough to drill through that? And, and who's intelligent enough to hedge here, or we're at $83 oil that we saw the other day, and then and just run through this because they know we're in a long-term market. Um, the acquisition side, I think the education, and this is where I come back to it, I, I really do think that, that private companies and public companies and, you know, and Chris Wright and I are friends and everyone knows I, I tout him a lot. And, um, but I mean, his message is really key because he's a publicly traded company and he's willing to get out there and talk honestly about oil and gas. He, I think they just had the earnings call and he had some stuff on LinkedIn. I haven't had a chance to listen to it, um, but he's very, you know, he wants to talk about the macro and the need for this stuff. And it's so, it's so critically important. So the industry has not done itself any favors over the last two years of helping to demonize the industry and helping to lean into all this energy transition, because it really matters in terms of the, 
how the market is looking at you and evaluating you and the stock market and the traders and investors and retail traders and general investors are looking at oil and gas and just saying, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? It's going to be dead in 10 years. And the administration saying, oh, I don't know, maybe you'll have, to, will we have to drill in 10 years? Maybe not. I mean, that's not how businesses work. It just, it's, it's, you cannot get people on board with we need this for a long time if, if we have this 10-year horizon. And and you got Fatih Barol with the International Energy Agency coming out again today. I mean, he's been sort of beating this drum for the last few days um, or last couple weeks and just saying, you know, I think oil demand will peak sooner than later. When in their oil market forecast that they released on the same day that Fatih Barol had a he had an op-ed in he had an op-ed in the Financial Times that said that the energy transition is just rolling. And at the same day, the International Energy Agency releases their oil market report, which I pay a lot of money for and get, which said the oil demand this year is going to 120, 102 million barrels per day. I mean, you cannot have it both ways. So it, it, they are fundamentally disposed, which one is a advocacy and viewpoint and one is reality. And um, so and, I, you know, the EIA has a much lower outlook for demand. Um, but it, this is a really serious thing is that the industry has to be honest about what the industry does. Um, and I'm not just saying just like touting it and saying, look how rah, rah, look how good we are. But it's also, you know, this is high BTU, high energy dense stuff that we produce and you cannot replace it. Um, and so the the three pillars of the energy transition are wind, solar, and batteries. And none of those work in the winter, in a, in a very cold weather. None of those work in a really hot summer. And none of those work in extreme temperatures, which apparently is what we're all building them for, is, is for us, you know, the extreme temperatures that we're all going to die of in 10 years or five years or whatever it is. So the reality is, is that if you're actually trying to build for climate change, these things aren't working, but they also just don't provide really good energy. And um, I truly think that the the last, you know, going negative 37 on oil prices, the jarringness out of that, you know, you know, having, you know, a couple hundred frack fleets and then going to single digits of frack fleets, um, day rates for rigs, you know, going, uh, dropping to nothing. I mean, all that was, was a big deal to this industry. So we've sort of moved our way back up and we're just getting to the point now where, you know, I think Chevron and Exxon are starting to be flipped back from their, their day where they were all smashed on their shareholder investor pressure day in May of 2021. They're starting to come back and, and really push back push back a little bit um, because they get these nasty letters from the administration on giving you know profits back to the average consumer, which no company is doing. <laughs> but th th so there has to be a reality shift, and, and that's going to take um, and that could be in a cold winter in Europe. That could be a lot of things, but the industry has got to take some of the responsibility in that of that you know so every time and that's why I say we do have to really be careful as the industry of really pushing you know, energy transition and ESG, doing the right thing is different from pushing something that is not accurate, especially if you're public, um, because it, you could actually be lying. Um, and there's a fiduciary responsibility there. Um, so as a private company, I think it's, it's, it's really on a lot of private companies to talk about what you're doing to really also, and, and talking about the market, as you say, like how important understanding midstream, but really how does this fit into Colorado and how does it fit in the national picture? Because you mentioned California, um, and California, yes, I, I love that your investors are from California and they understand the ability and people still do business. But if you look at monthly California production, it declines about 3,000 barrels a day every month. It's just on a steady decline because there's nothing going on. And the fact that you had 50 bucks in MCF, I mean, it's insane to have this, these really, really high prices. And so most Californians don't know that, right? And that's because the reason that those prices are high because they're not producing this themselves. I mean, I was just on a plane yesterday and the guy's telling me about, you know, asking some of my plane counterpart was asking me about like the high wind and solar in 
in this country. And I said, in Texas. And I was like, yes, they're able to have lots of wind and solar because they have natural gas and they, they put it into yep. the grid together. Um, and, and I'm not a fan of wind and solar, but I mean, the only reason you're able to do it is, is because of that. So I think the education part, I, and it sounds ridiculous, but I really do think it's key. And I'm not saying the industry, we've done it well to date or, or that we've figured it out or there's some secret sauce. And, and I, Chris Wright's honest about that too, of saying, hey, if energy was, if education was the answer, I, I w- we would have solved this forever because he's been educating for you know his entire career. Um, but we can't not do it either because um, your business, your ability to transact matters upon it. Even you're just your investors, the people that are backing, the other people on the sides of the deal have to understand the market that they're in. And when the FT and the Wall Street Journal and the CNBC and Bloomberg are clouded by all the energy transition bullshit, it's pretty hard to understand the market and want to invest in oil and gas for the long term. And I think that, you know, yes, it may be a 10 year horizon that your company is looking at, but it's still folded into the longer term. And so sure. the narrower and narrower it gets, it's really hard. So I, I think, and it sounds a little weird, but I think the big macro stuff that sometimes I focus on a lot, it truly, truly matters to the very, very narrow, we're doing business right now. Um, and you know that's what I work with a lot of people on, but I, that's my long answer. Well, so we're, we're constantly conflicted here at, at working in oil and gas model career. It feels like, you know, and we'll get into politics a little bit, because I think it's, I want to get your take on this is, we get Democrats in office and we put regulations on and prices go up. We put Republicans in office and mm-hmm. we create consistency and we bring drilling rigs and prices go down. What should I do as a voter? <laughs> and I know my answer because I think the right thing to do is to go drill and make sure that we have affordable, plentiful um, energy here in the U.S. But as a as a business owner, I want to I want to create value as well. And obviously, I, I know my answer. But yeah, it's it's really it's an interesting dilemma um, because. We're starting to see that play out this cycle in not only locally, but also, um, I mean, yeah, there's just, there's a lack of investment in Colorado, which creates good deals in Colorado because why is there a lack of investment in Colorado? Because yeah, we, we have negative regulation towards Colorado oil and gas. Um, you look at a, I think a quantum investment then in, in California, I think they've just kicked butt on it because nobody else wants to touch the business. So um, yeah, I'm curious what your take is on, you know, Democrat versus Republican, and what's the right answer for America? Yeah. Well, you know, it's some, it's 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 not the same, but I mean, it's like um, companies that are able to, you know, take the risk, like uh, companies that actively invest in the Middle East. You know, they're very comfortable in risk environments, and they can navigate it, and they tend to do, you know, they seem to do well because they they understand the environment. You know, they hire security people, like they they just navigate it. But if you don't know that you're not used to it, it's hard. Um, and again, that comes from people deeply understanding the industry, deeply understanding the fundamentals of the industry, the macro, the, the every like, you know, what China matters, what and Iran matters, like every all these pieces, they can they can deeply understand it to the word when they're transacting on a deal, they can feel comfortable. Whereas here, this this deep kind of craziness in the regulatory environment is pretty new in the last I mean, in the last two years, we've never seen anything quite like this chopped down from the administration. Under the Obama administration, I always say we had a lot of talk and there was definitely a lot of progress toward doing things. Um, and there was halting of Keystone Excel and the beginnings of all that. But, you know, the Obama administration did not do what the Biden administration has done. I mean, actively working through Department of Interior, um, you know, stopping permits on federal land for two months on day one, you know, stopping lease sales, um, you know, really fundamental huge impacts to states with federal land. So we've never seen this before. And but 100 you're 100% right. I mean if a high oil 
like this administration has directly contributed to high oil prices. So this business has businesses have done oil and gas businesses have done well. I mean, if he wants to know who's padded the pockets, he's done it um, because he has constrained oil and gas production. Again, that's an education standpoint that the industry has to be vocal about. You don't want me to drill oil and gas wells. And the industry has to say and be honest that the regulatory top-down burdens coming from this administration are preventing them, Exxon and Chevron, from wanting to drill more wells. Now, I mean, and it's amazing because you can look over the Trump administration and you can look over previous Republican administrations and where you have, it's a more pro-oil and gas, but it's generally just more pro-business. Um, you have low unemployment, you have low inflation, and you tend to have lower oil prices, but you also have stability and predictability. And I know the industry may, I think they need to be very honest about this with themselves is that, this isn't what you want. You do not want high oil prices, high inflation, and a recessionary environment and a non-pro-business environment, which is everything we have in Colorado and everything we have in this country. This business will not last under these incredibly progressive green policies. Look at Europe. I mean, the oil and gas business has no business because they put them out of business. And now they have an energy crisis and a war going on because they didn't have the balls to produce their own oil and gas, even though they have it. So that's the trajectory that we're going on. So in the short term, yes, you can make a buck. You can also hedge it and make a buck and just be smart about it. Um, so I think stability and predictability is the ultimate winning factor. And so if you're thinking short term, yeah, you may have some deals. But it's also, I know, I mean, we all know the DJ if you've been in it or you have, um, I have clients that are in the DJ. And I love the DJ because the denver Julesburg Basin, as we've been talking about, Weld County, you have great rock. It's really good geology. It's super consistent. It's seventh. It's, it's not super deep. It's this is what I mean. This was old vertical stuff. I mean, you have tons of vertical production, which was tons of vertical data. It's a lot like the Midland in many ways. It was well known, and so it's easy to execute. And so, and I mean, this is monobore drilling. This is pretty cheap wells, as you talked about your AFEs. You can spud the TD. This stuff, you know, drill these wells super fast. It's shallower. Um, yes, you don't have a thousand barrels a day production here and there, but I mean, DJ was way ahead of the curve on downspacing. Wells were always, you know wine racked and, and, and put tighter together. So, I mean, there's so many great things about the, the geology. Um, but think about that. If we just if we could go back in business and look at those business cycles through different administrations or different regulatory cycles, um, transactions were and in the health of the environment and the health of the employment and getting people um, is also super important. You can't even get people to study petroleum engineering at Colorado School of Mines now. That's, it's really critical to have all that to keep the industry going. And that's where I, I, I think that the industry, when, when Occidental is raw-rawing themselves and PDC is talking about how great it is and everybody who's public is talking about how awesome it is in Colorado, that's bullshit. I mean, it is just, it's not true. And they know that, but they have to say that because they want to keep getting the permits and everything's good. And it's good for them, but it's not good for everyone else. And so, yeah, your transaction value, if you get the deal done, could be great. But if something like this gets through, if this new bill goes through, if yeah. I'm an outside investor in New York or wherever, I'm going to say, why on earth would I invest in, in the DJ? And so pure DJ companies will get, you know, like, um, you know, a Civitas or something. And again, I'm not, I'm not stock picking or telling people what to do here. But if you're a pure <laughs> DJ company and you have, a, you know, you have an asset that, you know, and you're public, I don't think the market's going to view you very favorably if you continually have all these headwinds. And, and that was the case for for those companies, for XOG, when they were previously extraction. That was always the case for these companies. And I believe that's why Noble and PDC and others, you know, Noble, now Chevron, and everything, all those stepped out and got other pieces of their assets. Now, they, they tended to favor. What's fascinating is they tended to 
you know, P, I, I don't know, I need to look at PDC stuff, but they tend to actually favor Colorado in terms of drilling activity because it's known and it and it's really good. So it's, it's very fascinating. And I always say this when I first started in this business and first started Petronerds, um, I always really focus on individual operators and behavior. And um, that was, no, this is not one monolithic structure and everybody just does the same thing. So I think, um, so the answer to my, my long, you know, the short answer of that long one is that absolutely not. Do not vote for somebody who you think is going to raise prices because the, I, I truly believe, especially in this state, we have to be honest with ourselves. This is not about lowering emissions. Okay. It's not. We, we the, the industry has done that. This is, this is a fundamentally anti-business and there are agendas behind this certainly that they're concerned about pollution and emissions and stuff but fundamentally it is anti-business and i do believe there's some people probably supporting it because it is a backdoor way of banning the industry and they don't like not to see the industry any here, here anymore because they think it's dirty and nasty and all these things but it's just the the impacts jobs in the state and impacts oil and gas prices and so um we see this in europe where they have considerably higher prices and their economies are not as healthy and Colorado is going down that path. So there's a lot of debate in Colorado on how we should lead on the energy transition and stuff. And, you know, I have to be honest and say, I just don't, I, I, Colorado is leading in it. You know, Colorado is very progressive in all this stuff. And, and I think we have to be, it, when you're leading on it, you're also leading, a, you know, to, to my opinion and for everything you actually look at, you're going against business. And when you are anti-business, then it's we have an, we have inflation, we have costs, we have all this stuff, and we're anti. You know, it's all the stuff that it helps people. It, it lowers unemployment and it helps people. You know, buy stuff and and their day to day lives. And it's um, so I'm pro economy and I'm pro people, and um, that that matters a lot. Yeah, I'll just put a plug in for Colorado. I mean, it is um, it's amazing what the operators in Colorado have done to continue to get. One thing that's happening now is, and I think Liberty actually, speaking of Chris Wright, just put out a press release here over the last week on um, they're starting Liberty Fuel Company. I, I can't remember the yes, exact they name. Just, yep, they just, yep, they just announced that a couple weeks ago. Yep. Um, and we're doing it. We're, we have a residue gas system, which means it's a pipeline quality gas system in our field. And we now use that as frac fuel instead of diesel, which is pretty cool, right? Because now you're emitting less, you know, if we want to play mm -hmm. that game, but we're also saving the organization a significant amount of money. And, and other folks are compressing CNG, so compressed natural gas, the tailgate of plants, and they're trucking that to well sites. Yep. Um, it's pretty amazing, like on a diesel, a, a deep gallon of diesel on an MMBTU basis costs about 30 to $40 an MMBTU. And think about what gas costs, $2 an MMBTU. Yep. So the, the businesses continues to innovate and find more efficient ways to do it. We got to figure out the labor shortage because I was at School of Mines and I do kind of a yearly, uh, I speak to the mechanical engineering um, team there and I put out 30 business cards. They all got taken by the students and I was, we were offering an internship for Fundair and I was super excited. I think I did a good job presenting. Either I'm a really bad presenter or um, they just didn't like oil and gas is I think maybe what it was. And, or didn't want to go in that industry. Cause I think there's just such a bad connotation to that. And, you know, I think there's more kids going into aeronautics, you know, pretty cool 3d printing is big there. So not saying there's not other cool things, but it's pretty scary for something that powers our lives every day. That, uh, when I first came in the industry in 2008, everyone was telling me that, well, there's an age gap. There's no one here to take the reins of the, you know, the 50 and 60 year olds that are in the industry. And what feels like we're going to have that again in 10, 20 years when individuals like you and I, Trish, are going to start retiring because no one's coming into the industry. It's, it's, um, 
yeah, we need to try to change that. And it's it's gonna, like I said earlier, it's gonna have to be. There's gonna have to be some humbling. It feels like within the U.S. to some extent. I can't believe it hasn't happened in Europe. And I'm gonna compare California to Europe. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, you know, for some of the prices that, like, how does an Amazon delivery driver pay his bills? And I, I'm you sorry, know, I don't mean to single that out, but more of just how does you know uh, a wage income handle paying some of the bills that they're having to pay? I just don't. I feel and. Yeah, it's tough. I think I think it's really difficult. Well, so we're definitely having going to have to break this into two podcasts because it's it's quite long, which is fine because there's a couple more questions that and and I want to circle back on a couple things. And I think you're you're uh, you you talked about liberty and their the refresh the you talked about liberty and the their fuel company that they talked about. And I do believe that's that, that it's that's to provide. I mean, it's part of their whole the electric yeah. correct correctly stuff right um and so i think i think it's it's great to use field gas um and the stuff the cost saving me metrics and everything and that it it's fascinating to me actually and i think a lot of folks would look at this and say why wasn't this done a long time ago and obviously the technology and stuff had to had to gain steam but like especially when gas prices are low it make it just makes uh, it's r makes a ton of sense and it may help actually with a lot of the stuff within this these emission standards and stuff it may help with that as well as people are pushing on the electric fleet side so um that's been I'm curious, like, are you, I mean, so for you guys, and you were talking about everything, no tanks and everything, are you guys saying, hey, we're, we need an electric frack fleet to frack? Like, how are you guys thinking about that side? So, Trish, one thing here, everyone thinks this, but, and I would, I would, if, if you are on a texting basis with Chris Wright, you should do it. But I've, I've read some papers, Chris Wright, I think Liberty does this on several topics, and I don't know if they do a quarterly or monthly or just whenever they get kind of a topic they want to write about, but they put out papers. And um, being in the midstream side, we're big into infrastructure, right? So like a company like EOG in West Texas is building trunk lines from gas plants to their field to service frack fleets, drilling rigs, and gas lift compression. So typically in the field, what happens is, is you burn wet gas because you don't have the processing locally in the field. So you're burning NGL value. And traditionally, I'm going to use rule of thumb, your gas value is 40 to 60%. Your NGL value is 40 to 60% of that stream. So you're burning... 40 to 60% of a stream that you really don't need to if you just were to use that residue gas value. So people are catching on to this, obviously, like we just talked about, where Liberty's doing it. EOG decided to build this big trunk line and tie it into the frac fleet, the EFRAC deal. So Chris Wright put out a paper, and some of this is memory. So Chris is going to listen to this, which hopefully he does. That'd be a big, humble deal <laughs> for me. Um, is I'll text them and tell them to. The EFRACs, so because frac fleets, whenever they're pumping down hole, and I'm, a, I'm not a downstream, upstream guy, downhole guy, but whenever they're pumping down hole, they have to ramp up the frac, the, the turbines to keep up with the pumps and motors on the frac fleet. So the engines slip. They're always, they don't have turndowns on the turbines. So they're constantly using full throttle gas and they can't turn them down. So there's a lot of slip in the motor. So the methane emissions from EFRACs are actually worse, significantly worse than what it is from just a diesel frac fleet. Now, when you go to dual fuel, so where you can use diesel and, and natural gas, CNG or, right. or wet field gas, that's cleaner because now you're, those, right. you, use your, you use your natural gas, not during the ramp up periods, but during the steady periods, because there's not enough BTU in that molecule like there is in diesel in that natural gas. So it can't speed up quick enough. So you get this thing called slip, which I think is interesting because we look at these EFRACs and we're like, oh my gosh, these are the cleaner ways to go. And no, it's actually, it's more of a sound and just appeasing the public. It's yep. like the oil and gas way to ESG and say, hey, all right, yeah, fine, we'll do this. And 
we're working with a company right now um, to potentially provide CNG free for I'm like, all right, we're going to make money on it, but why are you doing this? So I, I think it's interesting. And I, and I think people should go read that paper because it, it doesn't come intrinsically like natural that, oh, I'm burning all natural gas. No, the natural gas doesn't actually have that BTU value to keep up with right. the frack. And I think I, I'd like to have, I, I've been wanting to have, um, have a couple, I've been wanting to have Lane Weirs on the podcast. I've had Chris Wright, um, but I want to have Lane to talk about the nerd side of the frack business, but I would also love to have uh, Roy, the guy who actually did their, their, the, I believe it was a quiet frack fleet. Um, but I'd like to talk about that and then the electric side. Cause yeah, I, I mean, EOG resources and several others were pretty big when the electric stuff was just start, a couple years ago when it was sort of just up and coming they were pretty big on, yeah, they were using all of them. And part of that's because they're public and they were touting this in their in their public documents, right? Um, and, but it was, I can be honest with you, you can, you can find it. You can go back to Halliburton's earnings calls and they flat out say, we're not chasing this uh, because okay. it just doesn't make money. And of course now they're, you know, everybody's into and chasing it. So that's where, I mean, there's just honesty and this gets into the kind of no energy is free stuff of just like, how, how does this actually work? And is it is it saving you? And does it make sense? And um, you know, chasing stuff. So I think it's, it's the devil's always in the details. Um, but I, I imagine in Colorado, there's a push to, to immediately go to electric correctly and then understand that it's quieter, right? It's, it's yeah. quieter. So there's, there's reasons. I think there's reasons to do it. Um, I think in Arapahoe County, the Civitas development, they're fully frack, and that's probably something mandated that, Hey, you know, you're next to homes and you need to be quiet. So I think well, there's the quiet, and, the, and the quiet frack fleet, I mean, if you've been on it and I've been on it, I mean, yes, you're still hearing noise and stuff, but like, and I hadn't, uh, I'm quite honestly, I hadn't been on a frack location prior to that. And I mean, uh, you can talk on this location. You, you oh. have to be, um, you, I mean, you have to be with it in like cognizant stuff, but like it's, it's significantly quieter than actually. And that's what uh, Liberty did pioneer that of like, it's significantly quieter than a regular, you know, frack fleet. And so there's a lot of safety things that go along with it. If people can just hear, um, hear each other. And so that helps a ton, but it's also a yes, big deal for, for urban and, you know, being in urban locations and everything, sound walls help with that as well. Um, yeah. But sort of, uh, okay, so it may or may not help on the air quality, depending on how you're actually, depending on, on actual fuel you're using. So, I mean, and, and we know this stuff, but I mean, I'm curious, we'll see how, what comes out with this bill um, and how, you know, companies sort of respond to it, because obviously only guests has mentioned this bill a lot. Um, but there's two other things I wanted to ask you about, and that's, you know, I, I'm always fascinated about production and getting more out of existing wells. Um, and it doesn't seem to be as, it's, it's definitely not as trendy in, you know, horizontal production. You know, my dad has pumped oil wells his whole life. My grandfather did as well. And so the ability, I think, to eke a little more production, especially out of, you know, especially out of horizontals and especially at, you know, when you have 70 something dollar oil prices and you already have this asset and you have that PDP of like just eking out more production. I mean, curious to how you guys see that on the, just the pumping side of really, you know, making these wells sing. Um, and then, uh, also, I, you know, I have a question on refrac and thinking about that as a as an opportunity in Colorado because of all the regulatory stuff that I think the first place we'd probably do it is here. Um, but curious on that production, where, what do you, how, how are you maintaining that, and how do you feel about just really making those wells talk to you? Yeah, um, I so being in an upstream company, I get to listen to a lot of these conversations. So I'll try to give you our stance on it. We we love the potential of it. Um, I think there's artificial lift versus kind of refract and what's oh absolutely what, yeah what is early life is two different things yep that's right that's right and um early life midlife late life and our production team brian brown specifically has done a great job kind of thinking through that and over the life it used to be rock pump 
gas lift. Now he's been going to this gas assisted plunger lift. Um, and then he's getting even better with actually the electric compression. It's a little bit more expensive, but we don't have the maintenance from gas drive engines. So we're continuing to optimize the artificial lift aspect of the, the business. There's also a company down in West Texas who's putting high pressure gas lifts. So they'll, they'll inject. So we typically inject around a thousand PSI. This company will go to 4,000 PSI to make sure you can get to the bottom hole, um, bring that fluid up quicker. So then you get a better return. So this is all artificial lift techniques. And I think we continue to try to stay in tune on also this brine water technology is kind of interesting too, where, you know, this geothermal brine water, you, you take this water coming out of the ground, totally separate topic, but people continue to innovate. And then on the refract side, I'll go to our range view business, um, Green River Basin. There's multiple, it's kind of that, you know, layered sands where you frack certain zones and there's different gas qualities in each one. And we're looking actually currently to maybe go and go into some of those wells and frack into other zones that haven't been fracked before. So that's something that we're actually probably going to look into this year to continue to add value to our range view business. Um, because there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, there's the Lewis, the Fort Union and the Almond uh, formations out there. Yeah, we, we typically in all of them only have one of those um, formations fracked. Oh, that's great. And well, and, and I think, so refrack is one of those, um, so one, I think you're, you're 100%, I mean, I'm with you on the production side of like, uh, I think the nuances on artificial lift and I also think just having really good production people and pumpers. Um, and that's where the, you know, bringing in some of the older guys you know, I know everybody thinks in their 30s that they know everything, but um, <laughs> some of those older guys in production, I mean, they just know this. And um, so, and it used to be, it, it is still critically important. If you can eke out a few more barrels a day out of each well, uh, that's pretty meaningful at $88 oil and even significantly lower uh, in matters. Um, but yeah. on the refrack side, I, I find it fascinating because I, I was at an SPE workshop a couple of years ago, and I think it was it was 2021, and it was in Tennessee on, and I it closed with this refract talk, and it, you know I believe Baker Hughes spent a ton of money on refract in 2014, thinking that this was the answer, you know this was where the industry was going to go, and um, everybody who is like crazy about refract doesn't there's a lot of market fundamentals that are going on with refract that you know if, if folks have enough wells to drill there and are still drilling those wells um that's what they're going to do um versus when if they didn't have any inventory they're running out and it's also why i don't think you hear public operators in the bakken that they were talking about it um in 20 and 2014 they were really dabbling with with refract stuff before oil prices really crashed and then that all sort of went away with the collapse of oil prices and part of that was because the knowledge of the assets and reservoirs and everything but if you're in colorado and you can you can refract a well as opposed to getting a new, you're doing a whole new well and I, I know part of it is that you know your completion cost is is usually your more significant cost of your well it's disproportionately higher than you know the rest of your well so if if it was less you know it would be an answer if it was less than 50 percent of your well cost you know i think the people might be inclined to do more refracts, but it's not, it's, it's, it's higher. So, you know, there has to be some, maybe some step changes on that. But I mean, if you had a good well before, if you had a good well bore and it was drilled well, um, you know, the ability potential to refract is there. And I would think that in Colorado, if you can do that without getting a new permit, um, that there's probably, 
that's probably the place you'd see it first um, is the places where it's difficult to get those permits. And it, it falls along the lines of drilling longer laterals, of the incentive to drill those longer laterals to prevent all the above ground stuff. And that these older wells, we definitely have not fracked all of it. You know, I mean, I, I'm very bullish on that rock potential of oh, just, yeah. you yeah. know, just doing it better. So I think it's those older, really good wells. Um, and so I think the potential there is huge, but it also is cool and exciting to me the fact that nobody is even interested in it because they're existing they have so many existing wells to drill which also kind of debunks my whole tier one to tier four acreage stuff so i really just think there's a there's a lot of longevity left in this um that uh but to me i'm i'm i think the whole refracting in colorado when you butt up against the regulatory stuff is is a much more interesting proposition um than i think in other places in the near term yeah, I think our, our trouble with it right now is I think our wells are just a little bit too new. We actually bought the asset with a handful to two handfuls of ducks on the business. And our, okay. our issue with it was we have PDP right next to it and kind of what does that do to the PDP and mm -hmm. how do we think about that? And I know ducks versus refract, but also if we go into an existing well and refract it, what does it do to the next well? So, mm -hmm. you know, probably some more. And I know Brian Brown thinks about it a lot, but how do you go into a well? Maybe you do a mini, mini frack. Um, just to open things back up again um, and bring it back to life and see what that does. And then you mm -hmm. go in, but then that also is going to potentially take some downtime on that well. So there's just some sensitivity around that from kind yep. of, I think where our business is today versus maybe where it's going to be in 10 years, honestly. Right. Um, and I don't know how much, I don't know how much like testing of, uh, you know, a little testing of vertical, like, I mean, there's probably data and knowledge from existing verticals around and potentially maybe defits um, or like yeah. actual, you know, a, a defit mini frack like you could actually test. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, when you're just drilling a well next to another well that's been producing, you know that, you know, how much is that new well going to produce, even if I have the greatest completion design ever and it's great rock because there's been probably some, there's some drainage there. Um, so, yes, that makes a lot of sense if that if you refract that you don't want to ruin your existing PDP. Um, and also there's a cost to refract it. So if you you got to pay for all that and then you got the existing, then you what if you hurt production? Yeah, but it's going there. It's got to go there, I think, to continue to meet demands of, of us. So it's, it's just, it's not there for us yet, but I do think it, it gets there. I mean, what are we? We're 15 years into the frack revolution, 20 years. Yep. So yep. yeah, some of these wells are getting getting probably to close to that. So yeah, which is which is kind of exciting. Um, And the last thing I'll say on your, uh, and I'll let, give you opener to, to close, but I mean, you talk about going to Colorado School Mines. And getting people and you know you talked about tightness in the marker and labor shortages and i think colorado in some ways especially probably for oil and gas it's harder um because it's uh yeah most people in denver have no idea that we're drilling you can drive an hour and there's <laughs> drilling and production activity out there uh, which there is and that we produce you know, 400,000 barrels a day and change. Um, we were producing 600,000 barrels a day and change before we declined. But anyways, that activity is there. So I've spoken at school mines, I've been at school mines at the end of February, beginning of March. And same thing is that, you know, there's all the, uh, so the, it was amazing because the younger students, the petroleum engineering students, they all had internships already and they had like 12 offers for internships and all the uh, seniors already had jobs and they had jobs months and months ago. So they had locked up, which is, you know, great for them, but they also had a, the ability to get kids into the petroleum engineering department was hard. 
And, um, and I listened to Chris Wright give a talk to the SPE students, you know, this SPE student symposium um, after I had given a talk at oh, the Denver Petroleum Club thing. And I, so I listened to him give this talk and, and all these students are, um, and I don't, I don't think this is Chatham House rules, but I mean, I listened to a lot of students ask him questions after he's given this amazing talk about, you know, energy, ask a lot of questions regards to energy transition, regards to solar, regards to CO2 emissions. And it was kind of amazing because I think that's what the feeling is for a younger person is that, you know, this isn't going to exist in 10 years. And this is something I, again, comes to the bigger picture, why it's so important for the industry and people to talk about this, this industry and the supply and demand and the macro fundamentals all the way down to the micro and the assets is because we have to have people and you have to have people to drill and complete these wells and that are educated. And um, so I, I mean, I talked to folks, um, we do, uh, took somebody out on a, on a frack location with a Liberty frack location. Um, at, he'll be going to mechanical, he'll be doing mechanical engineering at, um, at Colorado school of mines. And it's like just explaining this business and like the excitement of it and stuff of like, it's nerdy. It's pretty sexy. Um, in some ways, I mean, it's very nerdy. Um, but like, there's a lot and there's so much that you can learn and so many places where you can take it. And so I think, um, this industry needs to do a better job of talking about it. And, um, you know, I love to, and usually when I talk to people about it, they're, pretty interested and they're pretty excited about just knowing more. Um, so, I, I mean, that's my punch to the more educating, um, but I think we can't do enough. Oh yeah. No, we, we're very, um, our chairman is his uh, wife, Patty Starzer, Mike Starzer, our chairman, his wife is on the board of trustees of School of Mines and I'm pretty involved with School of Mines as well. So yeah, we, and we had had some freshmen in here yesterday actually, and we got to kind of just chat and it's amazing how intelligent and bright this new wave of students are. I mean, I would have showed up to that meeting yesterday in my like pajamas, bloodshot eyes, like hair everywhere. And, oh my God, just how professional this freshman was. And yeah, it's, it's impressive, um, but also we need to drive more of them into, <laughs> try to drive more of them into our industry. At the same time, I, I kind of get it there. It's, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work. And I think, unfortunately, investment back in our industry and, and some, some humbling, I keep saying that. Um, but yeah, I, same thing happened to me. I think I said that earlier, Trish was, in that I put out 30 cards and I got one call. Um, and the call I got was uh, from a freshman and his dad's in the industry, works in Conoco. So it's, it's just, I think it takes that it's, you know, someone, someone like me who actually had parents who weren't in the industry. And for me, it was different, but like someone like me who didn't, doesn't have like sponsors saying, Hey, go into this, this is okay thing. It's just going to be tougher and tougher with kind of what's going on politically. And, um, especially in Colorado, if you grew up in Colorado or California or you know, just, it's going to be tough. And I don't know how the, if every, every year I hear people say, we got to do a better job. We got to do a better job. Well, I don't know if the government's against you, what do you do? I mean, you turn on CNN, it's like, holy cow, we are, we are the scum of the world because <laughs> we work. And you're kind of nervous when you go around public places to tell people what you do. I mean, I do, cause I'm proud of it, obviously, but um, you, you just don't know the reaction. And sometimes it's just quietness on the other side. And sometimes there's actually like, I'm interested and maybe it's kind of fake interested because they actually secretly like think you're not supporting the earth, but yeah, so it's, it's super interesting. I, I think the fun part, uh, from, a it keeps you on your toes and it's constantly like grab your popcorn because every year is like, okay, what's going to happen here? Like in 10 years, what's, what, what it feels like in my head, it's going to be some peak demand where now we're going to have to refract and cause I have the theory that you know, the Midland Basin, West Texas is the only growing basin, at least it will be kind of in the next couple of years. Haynesville's maybe getting there. And once we go over that curve, 
where does that extra crew production come from? So what happens is kind of in that longer term. And then obviously what happens with the SPR, I think is interesting to me. You know, do we actually go fill that back up? And no, we need to. What does that do, to, um, what does yeah. that do for prices? No, it's, and, that's and it's interesting. China just taking all of our oil and put it in their, they've taken our SPR and put it in their SPR. And, you know, so it's just, it's always super interesting. I'm always excited for the 9 8.30 a.m. EIA report on Wednesdays. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to be in this industry. Well, so that, that, and that's a positive note I think we can end on, but that funness and that, like, all that macro stuff, um, I think it's really where, because people ask me a lot, you know, of, like, how do you stay positive? And one, I can say, you know, when you're confident and you are excited about what you do, people do listen. Um, whether they disagree with you or agree with you or not, they do listen. And the one thing people can always usually uh, get especially interested in or ask questions is about Russia, about China, about what's going on globally. And, and when you say, you know, start getting to China and Russia and oil and gas and Iran and Saudi Arabia and, you know, how much does Saudi produce and how much does the U.S. produce? And they say, you know, the U.S. is the largest oil producer and people don't know that. And, and then, you know, frack, oh my gosh, fracking's terrible. And you say, okay, well, what is fracking? And you start getting into like the, the cool nerdiness of fracking and how it works and how we, how much production we've grown and how we've changed the geopolitical leverage of this world um, and how a war was waged in, in Ukraine because the folks lacked because Europe imported 18 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas from Russia, you know, it's, it starts, the, the dots start clicking. And so it's funny because I tell, uh, I can't remember, I was just in DC talking to these folks and um, <laughs> seeing a lot of uh, folks that kids were kids, uh, young men that had interned for me um, years ago, like 10 years ago in DC. And they showed up to this event and I was catching up with them. And so we we're talking about this and I was saying, I've never, I have almost every Uber driver I have is a podcast listener now. Um, and because they all, you know, they ask yes. what you do and, and then they start and like, they want to know and you say pet nerds and they, they start listening. And so it's been, I, I can tell you like, and even in DC talking to these interns, I had no idea they were following me, but they were like telling me they found me on a different podcast and started listening. And so I, I am always impressed by like, when I get out there of people that are listening, a lot of those are folks in the in and outs of the industry, but, um, random people too and people really want intel and knowledge and information and i think that it's it's so critically important as you say of the the biases and everything but i think that you know being that's intel knowledge and information and obviously i have my own biases and i'm passionate as hell um but like it's that information that is game changing um and it, it obviously as you know um and you have it is matters for businesses and how you make decisions um and that's how you move the needle so Trish, all right. So question. So you do a great job for our industry and uh, you're an advocate and I think you put out a lot of good factual information, but how much comes from Twitter, EFT? Do you get any of your info from Twitter? No, um, I don't. I don't love Twitter. You don't? Uh, I use, I use it because the EFT crowd is, and they're not bad. I mean, I think when I first dabbled in it, they were like kind of welcoming of me, but it's, 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 it's half banter and it's half okay. real stuff. So, um, I would say I'm not like against it. It's just people on Twitter, you could say the wrong thing and they, they devolve into some ridiculous argument or something. And so I have no interest in to debate. I care a lot about information. So, um, and I'm not saying you can't gather snippets of information from Twitter, although I mentioned it the other day in a conversation and it didn't seem to go well. So I can say I think it's a unique platform um, in terms of I this information. But most of the stuff and I would say, like, actually, there's a couple of people I follow when I see their things. Just when I post something like I see it, they usually are posting something from Gazprom or from the, the G7 Energy Communique. And I, I go and I find the original document and then I read it. So I, yep. I 
for finding primary sources and just stuff, I think it's good. I don't think it's super beneficial to just get into these ridiculous circular arguments, but that's that's my opinion. Um, and 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 people like I post stuff, and it's interesting. Sometimes I'll post a video and put a link to the podcast, and I'll get a thousand views, and sometimes it gets you know two hundred. Versus on LinkedIn, um, I I tend to like I think there's a lot of folks on LinkedIn who and it's interesting because people won't put on the podcast on Apple. They won't like say they won't subscribe and then put like five stars and say, wow, this is great. They'll people only post stuff when they're critical. So they'll be like, That's please right. let That's the right. guests talk more. And I'm like, sometimes the guests don't talk as much as you think they, you know, like, so, so you don't know. Um, and I do talk a lot. So I'm like, it's also my podcast. So uh, it's your show. That's right. <laughs> I'm allowed to, but it's just funny because it's that stuff versus then people I'll post this, I'll post something on LinkedIn and I'll do this after this. I'll usually like do a post and, and talk about the podcast and like tell people, you know, market update. And it's, it's thousands and thousands of views and people direct message me and say, thank you so much for the update. I mean, people are like, Hey, do you sell this stuff? Yes, I do. Um, you know, like you hire me, like, I mean, people get that direct feedback. And so it's interesting. Like I, Twitter isn't so great for that, but I think LinkedIn is, is good. And then it's more like when I get out to DC and I give presentations and, um, and it's, there's different people who I haven't been exposed to. Um, that's why I really enjoy, like, you know, I did the Denver Petroleum Club and usually a couple people, it's always when I can do that, it's that somebody's in the room that hasn't seen it and they're like, okay, this would be great. Can we do this more for, for th this completely different entity? And so I'll be speaking with Rocky Mountain Measurement Society uh, next week. And um, so that's a different group. Those are super nerdy stuff, but it's a whole exposures. And I love it because I'm learning something new, but it's also that, you know, I love the granular aspect of the business from the wellhead um, to, to the refinery. And it's that side of the business and being able to take that and make the macro stuff alive and under getting it all meshed together. Um, it just, it's just awesome, but it's, it's great to like, they're, this business is huge. And so when people always ask me like, who are your competitors and everything? It's like, it does, there's enough room for all of us people. Like, um, oh, yeah. if, yeah. if you think, if you think, you know, everything in this business, you don't, um, it's just, it's impossible. And so it's, I think it's really helpful, especially now with so much group think. And as you mentioned, seeing it, all the just noise out there, it's nice to have somebody distill it and just to like, and somebody you can text and talk to and just be like, Hey, w what about this? Um, and again, I'm not a gospel or anything, but like, I spend a lot of time on this information. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, thank you for everything you do. Um, I think we need more of you and there needs to be more support. Um, like the Alex S being, it gets a little bit too kind of emotional. I think I, I really like the facts. Obviously I'm an engineer and you and Chris, Wright. I, I always, Chris, Wright. You, you guys do a great job of just telling the story in a way that kind of makes it more personal where, you know, you think about countries like India or Africa and you're like, man, there are people that we we are idiots is the wrong word but we like look over there and let's help those let's let's get this resource out of the ground and give it to them so yeah thank you for everything you're doing well i i really appreciate that and that's a um you know i and i don't I, i've kept the podcast independent um I've, I've been dabbling on whether or not i should take a sponsorship but i kind of like the i like the independent of it because people see the information and view it that way so dabbling on that front, but, um, I, I like to, I'd rather use it as a independent and educatory, you know, education platform and then just work with folks directly, um, and help them with their businesses. So, but if other folks have opinions on that, I'd be happy to hear it. No, I think, uh, I've been a listener, so yeah, it, it's working and what you All do right. to pay your bills is up to you. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And on that note, um, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. This is definitely um, going to, as this close, is part two of this podcast because we have to break up this long conversation into two podcasts. But thank you so much. It's been a blast. Yeah. Thank you, Trish. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye.